We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Truth Perspective. It is March 14th. I am Harrison Cayley. And I'm Elon Martin. Yes. And I'm Karen. Thank you. Today, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week with our discussion. Uh, I hope everyone managed to catch that one. We interviewed Tom Stevenson about his book on Julius Caesar. Well, we're going to go into... We're going to kind of take off from that and go in a few different directions, starting out with a a discussion on kind of the role or the nature of leadership and what makes a good leader. But uh, first of all, I mentioned today was March 14th. Tomorrow, what's tomorrow? Oh, did anyone hear that? Let's wait. Beware the Ides of March. No. Tomorrow is March 15th, the Ides of March, the famous date in history when Julius Caesar was assassinated. So it's been, according to the official count, something like over 2,000 years since Caesar was assassinated, and we still remember it. And the name of the day even gets nods on shows like The Simpsons. So that just goes to show that what Tom Stevenson was talking about last week, that Caesar lives on, and <laughs> you can find him pretty much everywhere in pop culture and politics and everywhere, really. But we'll get to Caesar in a bit. First of all, leaders, politicians, we all hate him, right? Well, I think, the personally, if I look at the way I see the world, I don't like too many politicians. And I think the first thing that comes to my mind, and usually probably... A lot of people's minds when I hear politician is something like the word crook or liar or slime ball or con man or snake in suit. What about you guys? Uh, psychopath comes to mind. <laughs> That's a good word. Pretty quickly. Yeah, I do have to. <laughs> well, are there any politicians that we've liked, like in in past history, recent history? Maybe JFK. Yeah. Okay. Well, here, here. So why do people like JFK? Well, I would say uh, one of the first things is uh, that he's best known for his speeches, the types of things he was saying. Uh, He was trying to uh, instill values uh, that were important uh, and actually came out and said certain things about the establishment. And, uh, and of course, these were things that uh, up until um, Dwight Eisenhower, we haven't heard too much about. So he was a, a brave, uh, mm-hmm. progressive guy and was unabashed about it. And he had a little bit of charisma, too. I mean, he was popular. Mm-hmm. 
there were people that didn't like him, of course. That's the case with any politician. But just like his brother, Robert, there was just something about them that, you know, people gravitated towards them and seemed to kind of, there was just this emotional, um, I don't know the, even the word, it's like a, just a, an emotional pull towards these people. They just seemed to exude some kind of charisma on on people. But there, you felt connected to them. Yeah. Like you knew them. And that's why so many people horrified and in despair after Kennedy will end after both of them were assassinated. Well, and it, and it was in such a, a and uh, kind of in your face way. There was no way to anticipate it, no way to kind of recover very mm-hmm. soon from it. But on the other hand, charisma, like Stevenson was saying last week, uh, charisma isn't always a good thing. I mean, when you look at the people, the politicians that have had charisma, you've got the people that people generally look upon as positive leaders or positive role models like the Kennedys. But then you've got the charisma of someone like an Adolf Hitler or, you know, Joseph. Um, this, this, it, but they seem there's something that they have in common is charisma, but it seems like they're somewhat poles apart. Because on the one hand, you've got the charisma around someone who seems like a, at least a, a genuinely decent person. And on the other hand, someone who, at least in history and among people at the time, has gone down as uh, like an evil tyrant. So there's something going on there. We'll get into that a bit. But my point being that charisma seems to be a, a double-edged word that seems to be something positive about it in certain instances, but in others, it can go in some nasty directions. So, if we look back on Caesar, Caesar had a lot of charisma, and that shows in the historical texts that we have and the records about him. He had charisma, popularity, not only among his peers, or at least a group of his peers, but also the Roman people. And we saw that when he was killed as well. People basically rioted in the streets after he was killed. And, well, that just goes to show the kind of feeling that had that he had inspired in others. Now, when we were having the discussion last week, uh, there were a few comments that I would have liked to have made and didn't get the opportunity to. When I look back and I, when I read about the history, of Caesar and Caesar's life, I see a guy kind of like, I don't see it the way that Tom saw it. I see him more as like a JFK figure even for the time. And what leads me to, to think that, well, if you look at the course of his career, there is that kind of popular tint to it, that he was popular with the people he did introduced certain legislation that the people supported and liked. And he, while he wasn't necessarily revolutionary, like Tom pointed out, he did make certain changes and he did go against certain groups in the establishment. And he did make certain comments. And right from the beginning of his political career, when he first started out as what we'd call a lawyer, taking people to court, he went after guys that were 
that had engaged in some like horrible practices in the past. It was kind of a political statement about Sulla's regime mm-hmm. that he went after these people who were extorting the provinces, people who were engaged in um, well corruption and political assassinations, and that from the beginning of his career carried carried over and throughout his career in what seems to me to be a pretty stable and consistent way. So basically what I'm saying here is that Caesar from the beginning of his career, while he may not have aspired to supreme power, he did have he did seem to me at least to have a certain set of principles that guided the way he quote did politics. But Elon, do you have any comments on that? Well, uh, I agree. It seems to be a um, a kind of a guiding principle uh, in his career. Um, it's very hard to separate uh, who Caesar was from the times he was living in. And I, I think uh, Stevenson um, uh, establishes that in his book. At the same time, um, you know, when when we look at certain leaders today who are going against um, certain trends in their society and in policies that are foisted upon them by other nations, uh, I think we I think we tend to underestimate the challenges that they're uh, faced with, and uh, on multiple fronts as well. And I think that may have been the case, probably was the case with Caesar. Um, I mean, he, you know, by Stevenson's admission, uh, he did instill reforms that even if they weren't revolutionary, were still addressing problems as they came up. Um, and at the time, uh, that, that may have been the very best that he was able to do, uh, given everything that he was confronted with. Well, if we, if we come back to the present and just look in terms of, the general kind of ideal politician. Okay, so let's ask ourselves, if we were looking at a politician and we wanted to say, well, that's a good guy, you know, he's doing good stuff. He's not like all the rest of the crooks in Washington or in any other country. Well, what would we, what would we, what would we be looking at and what would this guy actually be doing or woman? What would they plausibly and practically be able to do because if we think about the way politics is structured, there is pretty much every country, there's a very entrenched system that has existed for however many years beforehand. It could have been mere decades before a certain system of government was set up, or it could be hundreds of years, where we have these institutions that have just carried over and developed and just continued on for all these generations. So let's say you've got this guy, this this person this man or woman who is intelligent, has a conscience, can see the problems that are in a society and basically just wants to do a good job as a civil servant. Well, what are they going to do? Well, first of all, they've got to get into the system if they're not already in it. How do you get into a system that's already existed for however many generations? Well, you know, you've got to, quote, play the game a little bit. You have to know how the game works and you have to be willing to to play it. You know, uh, what you just said reminds me a lot about how, speaking of JF, JFK, how he got into office. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently his father, Joe Kennedy, uh, had made certain deals with the mafia. 
in helping to secure a certain number of votes um, in a very tight race with Nixon mm-hmm. um, in, in 1960. And uh, this was just a political reality. Uh, he, he had to acknowledge how things were running. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think of Kennedy, you don't think of someone who was making deals with uh, the mafia. And, and yet he must have been aware on some level of the strings that his father, um, you know, Joe Bootleg <laughs> Kennedy, uh, was pulling in order to get him into office. Um, and that was just something he had to do. Mm-hmm. And if you, and when he did get the presidency, he and his brother, especially Robert, went after organized crime. And that, of course, leads some um, some conspiracy theorists to, to think that that was a motive behind his killing, is that the mafia basically was taking revenge on him for you know, going after the people that helped get him into power. So, so there's that. But I think that example just right there shows what a person of conscience can do once they achieve a position like that. Sure, they might have got, got there with the help of some some shady dealings, but to not be to be able to live in that world and operate in that world and not be controlled by it, and in fact to make efforts to make it better, that says something about what these people are like. Now, coming back, well, so we've got this guy gets into power at some level of government in an existing country. Now, so anyone that does so, like we said, has to accept the reality as it is and work with the political facts on the ground as they are, at least in order to establish him or herself in the system. But what can they do once they get there? I mean, uh, last week Tom had mentioned he he didn't think that Caesar was a, a statesman And by his definition of statesman, I think that's correct. He said he didn't have a grand vision for totally restructuring the entire way that the the empire was run. And I think that's that's a fair assessment. But how much is that plausible, though? Is, Is that practical? Can a person that just wants to totally reform, let's say, American politics and say, okay, I'm going to be president. Okay, first of all, someone thinking that probably isn't going to be president, but let's Say we've got this young idealist that says, I'm going, to, I'm going to totally reform American politics. You know, I'm going to demolish the Fed. I'm going to shatter apart the CIA. I'm going, I'm going to shut down all the military bases around the world. I'm going to shut down the NSA. I'm going to get to the bottom of everything. I'm going to find out what happened at Roswell. Where is this guy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, this guy was Kennedy, <laughs> uh, sadly. And um, I think that's the point there. Uh, you know, the last uh, leader that we've seen um, who tried to do these types of things, and arguably arguably there, there may be a couple of others that we can mention who uh, weren't up or aren't up against quite as much, um, but close. Uh, it, it was an impossible task, um, even, even with the vision and the charisma and uh, some of the support that would be required to do it. Well, because I think that these problems can be seen, and they can be seen by many people. All these individual problems that you look at them and you say, okay, well, that's got to stop. You know, like all the torture going on, the black sites, the, the surveillance, torture, political assassinations, 
uh, NGOs funding coup d'etat, coups d'etat in other countries, they're identifiable problems. But even someone like, let's say that someone like Kennedy saw all these problems at his time. Could he really practically address each one of them and fix all of them? Well, he may be able to see these problems and see steps, immediate steps that can be taken with the, you know, according to the conditions as they are. But something like totally taking apart the CIA, that's a, well, it's kind of a pipe dream in the sense that it, who knows, it may be possible, but not without a lot of steps to finally get to that point. Because when you look at the nature of politics then and now, like I said at the beginning, these are entrenched structures, political structures that have been around for years. And it's not, it's not simply a matter of, you know, going into the office and, you know, putting an X over the CIA, all the CIA papers, okay, you don't, you guys don't exist anymore because these relationships, these, these political relationships, these power relationships exist regardless of what's on paper. The CIA would still exist if the CIA as an institution didn't exist because these people would still have access to resources. They'd still have the connections that they have. They'd still have access to all of their agents and patsies all over the world. So if we were to look back in 2000 years at Kennedy and let's say we like, so documents have been destroyed. We don't have access to all the historical record. We've just got bits and pieces kind of like um, I'm kind of making an analogy for the way that we see the history of Rome. Just say a similar thing happened in the future. We wouldn't have access to Kennedy's real thoughts. We might have access to some of his speeches. Then we'd have access to what people said about him afterwards. Some of them, some not. History would have been scrubbed a little bit because some people with all these books would have looked back and said, oh, well, you know, we don't really like that. That doesn't fit our political um, wants of the day. Just cut out from what we've got now and let the rest go on into the future. So we wouldn't have access to, to what's going on in his mind. All we'd have access to are what he was actually able to do. What, is, what he was able to do, we say, oh, well, you know, Kennedy wasn't a statesman. He didn't get rid of the, he didn't get rid of the CIA. You know, they, the U.S., after he died, the U.S. got even worse. And the history of coups d'etat and just horrible things after that. So, you know, Kennedy mustn't have been a very good guy. But I think that's losing sight of the political realities at the time and just a just what a force up against as much as much personal power or force as an individual can have in a system like this they are up against so much and i think that's what a lot of people miss out on when they're or miss from the analysis when they look at these things because when we when we look at just power structures today like in the states and in any kind of west they're basically oligarchies where you have this small group of rich individuals that make the decisions. And that's the way it was in Rome. Some inter- Tom said some interesting about Roman society and the kind of environment that Caesar would have grown up in. So we talked about the just the, the extreme level of competition. So not only did you have to go up against every other Roman citizen in order to ascend, you know, the, la- the political ladder of positions to the to the top 
which would be consul and then senator for life, you had to compete with all of your ancestors and basically the, the everyone in Roman history to be the best. So let's say that there's this young Caesar who by all accounts was extremely intelligent and had just an, an enormous amount of self-will, self-discipline. And we try to imagine what his, you know, what he might have been thinking as a young man. Well, I think Tom's probably right that he didn't necessarily envision becoming a monarch. He didn't really have the, the resources available at the time or the, or the political you know, capital as a young man to, to think of that as real possibility. It was one step at a time, one decision at a time. And by the, by, by the man's nature, he seems to have just, you know, he made all the right choices. He went all in enough times and made, you know, won enough times to just be able to, to ascend that, that ladder of the, the Roman hierarchy. Because anyone in that society who wanted to be a good civil servant or statesman or politician had to do that. I mean, there's no, there's no way around it. If you want to, if you, if you were in Rome and you wanted to make any kind of difference, you had to play that game. You had to become a part of that competition and you had to win. <laughs> now, so with Caesar, he, he did that. He entered the system he followed all the rules. Like Tom said, he was his entire career followed a pretty traditional path. At every at every stage in the game, he when he was of, when he was of the age to enter a certain political office, he entered that political office. He did what was required while in that political office, and he often did it better than everyone else. Now that points to to something else about Caesar's character. <clears throat> that all these things that he did, he he did do better than any, than everyone else. So Roman politics was a very competitive industry. And if, if we think in terms of fairness, then if, if it's all about competition and the best man wins, then Caesar gets to the very top, then, you know, what should be, everyone should kind of be all, all right with that. Right. I mean, I think it depends on your viewpoint as, you know, looking from afar. Uh, the best politicians are usually the ones, I mean, the, the ones that play the politician game are the ones that know their audience. They know who they're speaking to. They know what is expected. They know they have their finger on the pulse of, of that society. And so it, it very much becomes a, a marketing tool t as to how they present themselves. Um, there are rare politicians such as Caesar who may have gone on instinct and instinct always runs to a truer place within you and uh, pulls out maybe a, a higher or loftier uh, set of mm -hmm. uh, morals or rules or, or outcomes. That reminds me of something from... Arthur Kahn's book about Caesar, the education of Julius Caesar. He talks about, because there isn't a lot of data on Caesar. And so what Kahn does is he 
looks at what we can plausibly know about what a Roman child would have experienced and the kind of values that would have been instilled in them. And so he talks about just some some of the good, what seemed to me at least to be really good values that were inst- that were at least on the surface um, seen by Romans as the right things. So you know, um, being a a good well, being a good leader, and that that would apply in the family and in the the patron client relationship and. Um, the idea of fairness and just being a, a good person to deal with that solves problems and the, you know, the value of truth. So there are all these values that in a person, in a child receptive to them would really have an effect. Now, this is kind of like the thing that Bob Altemeyer talks about, about uh, religious conversions and people who become atheists coming out of a, a very strict religious environment is that in that religious childhood, they are, kind of, well, I wouldn't necessarily say battered with these ideals and, uh, and value and religious values, like about truth. And so this really becomes a part of, of this child to the point where when they start seeing contradictions in the Bible, they say, well, that can't be true. And so it was actually their religious value for truth that made, that makes them leave their religion. Now, I wonder if something similar would happen to a man like Caesar, who has grown up seeing Roman society in a certain way according to these values, and these values actually become real, and then you see the reality, what's really going on. Because when you look at Roman society, it really wasn't that pretty. I mean, just like we were saying about American politics, it was an oligarchy, and while things got done and the state ran on, I mean, there was just the, the disparity in wealth and even the, even the competition among the, the senators or the, the, just the ruling class. You can look at that, let's say, from a young, naive point of view. This is the view that I was trying to give just a few minutes ago about the competition. Well, it's based on the best man wins. And once you've established your position, you know, I'm number three in Roman society. You know that you're number three for a reason and that you're better than the other, you know, you're better than everyone four down. But it doesn't really work that way when you, or, you know, the shock comes when you see that it doesn't actually work that way, that there are these, again, power relationships in certain individuals. They decide, they scheme to have certain power relationships and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to make it so our three families, um, you know, establish or have this many consulships and, and then, so you'll have power then, and then, and then we'll give you the consulship. And so we're all just going to kind of collude together in order to be the top men in Rome. Well, that has nothing to do with merit. That's just using the power that you've already got in order to keep it, despite any shortcomings you might have. And so when Caesar gets to the top and, you know, following that chain of events, like Tom was talking about at the end of his life, when he was consul for life, he was about to be deified. He had just all these honors heaped upon him. The rest of the, or a group of the senators got together and said, well, we don't like this because we want the opportunity. We want our traditional 
opportunity to compete with you and to compete for power as opposed to you giving it to us. Well, you know, Caesar was, he was there, he was at the top and he was there for a reason. If, if they had any kind, if they, if they really liked the traditional structure and practices of Rome so much, they'd, you know, admit that they, they couldn't top him, right? Well, there's something else that Caesar was doing, I think, um, and Stevenson compares this to uh, Suller, Sulla's actions as well. Uh, he had made relationships and tried to be in a more inclusive or have a more inclusive government. Uh, so he was reaching out to people, and even if it didn't seem revolutionary at the time, uh, he was including uh, more people from the, the larger um, empire uh, and very kind of casually, um, in many cases, making deals with them and and that were mutually beneficial. Um, yes, politically, but also to the empire at large and also to these individuals who were uh, might have been on the outer fringes. And so uh, that was another cause for resentment among uh, among these uh, these optimates or senators who uh, were vying for um, you know, staying in, in power or, or getting some of their power back. And um, it also, uh, all roads lead back to psychopathy. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you had to have had a, a, a fair number of these guys who were just uh, going nuts uh, with the idea that, again, even if it wasn't revolutionary, that, that there was... Um, power being taken away from them and uh it was completely unacceptable to them so when i was talking about entrenched political systems this is what i really had in mind because that's kind of the definition of pathocracy entrenched pathological grouping of people aspiring to get power and keep it and once they are in power they're if, if anyone tries to come up against that, they will stop at nothing to get rid of them. So this is another one of these political realities that someone has to keep in mind when they go into politics, is that they're going up against a bunch of ruthless psychopaths that will kill them at any opportunity if they think it's in their interests. And that's what happened to Caesar. It's what happened to JFK, Robert Kennedy, MLK, all the people, all the people assassinated that we talk about. That's really, I think, the biggest reason is because of this psychopathy. And a, psycho a psychopath see any of those things that we were talking about, about the values in a society, because the values in a, in a culture or society are just a, a mask for them. They're something that they use just to, just to manipulate other people. So uh, a, a decent human being will, will actually assimilate those values as part of themselves, as a part of their way of life. And the way they approach how they live their life, how they do the work that they are in. A psychopath can't understand any of that. So that's where you have this disparity between what the ideals of a society are, the ideals of a, let's say, even the positive side of a, of a competitive environment like in Rome. And then the, the caricature of that or the distortion of that in which people use that system just to get power for the sake of power 
not based on any kind of personal merit, but simply because they're the most ruthless bastards of the bunch. And certainly, the some of those ruthless people were in the the so-called the group of the so-called optimates, as Tom described them. They were extremely reactionary, just stubborn to the point of they were willing to. Well, both sides were willing to go to civil war, but they were going to they were willing to have a civil war because they didn't want they didn't want Caesar. Basically, they just would not compromise with him, even though everything. All the events that were happening at the time showed that that would be the that would be the thing to do, the sane course of action. But they just couldn't go there. And then once Caesar won the civil war and got all of his honors, then they, there was this conspiracy to assassinate him. Now, if you look at the conspiracy and the motivations behind it, they said it was for libertas, for liberty, for freedom, because they have their freedom. Caesar was a tyrant. And he took away their freedom. Now, what he was taking away was their freedom to engage in these corrupt practices, aspiring for power for the purposes of power, and that's it. They didn't have any high high moral values or high visions for how to make the empire not only function, but function well. They just wanted things to stay as they were. They were reactionary. So it's kind of ironic that they were using freedom as their as their call as their slogan when like like Tom says in his book Caesar was actually popular the people liked him so what's going on there well how to how better to convince the public that, that they should go against someone um, but to tell them that they're not really free um, and we see that uh, everywhere there's a color revolution in the world today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're fighting for democracy. Um, we're fighting for freedom. Um, and it's this kind of nebulous vision of, uh, that's been foisted upon them by, um, by think tank, uh, employees, uh, in the West. And, uh, it it doesn't. It's a very superficial idea, but it's it's kind of like a a meme, a viral contagion, and they can't or don't or or, or won't think beyond the slogan. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's always kind of a, the choice of wrapping propaganda around a lie, mm-hmm. or wrapping a lie around propaganda, or wrapping the truth around propaganda, and that's. That's the choice that the public has to see through. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitler, you know, any any of the the nefarious kinds of, of rulers were masters at calling black white and white black. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's you know very much in the realm of the average person to make those kinds of distinctions and, and see if they can suss out what is what is truth and. What is camouflage? And I think that I think the Romans could see it. I mean the the people, the plebs, because well Caesar was a good uh, let's say he had he had a good PR team or he was his own good PR team because he was he was very careful about the way he presented himself to make sure not only that he presented himself in a way that 
aligned with the traditional values and norms of Roman society, but also to really point out his difference from those that would be called like the evil tyrants. So in a choice between Caesar and Sulla, I don't think any sane pe- person would choose a Sulla. Assassination lists, just that alone is one of the one of the big points. But Caesar, I mean, Sulla was Sulla was an evil dictator, and so Caesar very consciously went against that, and that's where that's part partly where his policy of clemency came out of, where he wasn't going to have his enemies put on kill lists simply because he wanted to eliminate all competition. He would publicly forgive them, show mercy towards them, and accept them into his, well, into his milieu. Well, he he exemplified his um, values. Yeah. And I think that we don't have access to, to Caesar's th- innermost thoughts, but I think by looking at his actions, we we should be open to the possibility or even the probability that behind his actions, there was a corresponding value that went along with it. So clemency wasn't just a political scheme because he thought it would work better than anything else. It was because he was genuinely a clement person. He was merciful. He was also uh, an an experienced and um, effective general in warfare. That's another thing we can get into, get into. But there does, if if you look behind the surface of the actual things that he did, I think you can pick up that kind of not only charisma but that good charisma that you'll see in, a, in an individual like JFK. Because if we look at Roman society and we look at the conditions and the expectations and the the things that a politician slash warrior, because politicians were warriors, had to do in that system. Caesar had to be a general. He had to go to war. He had to have military victories. He had to do all of these things within the system. Now, so if we look and if if we ask ourselves, what would a Caesar look like today? I don't think that this is where I, I disagreed with Tom last week. What would Caesar look like today? Well, I don't think that we could just take Caesar and place him into our culture and then have him start the Gallic Wars. Because they're totally different political realities. If we look at just the general characteristics of Caesar, Caesar entered the political environment and did what he had to do within that political environment. I think that's the model that we can translate into today's realities. So if we take a Caesar prototype and we put them in politics today, what are they going to do? Well, I think an an individual like that would... Have, an, have first of all, have extreme intelligence and conscience, see the problems available, see the steps that can be taken towards using those political realities and making them better step by step, not with any, not with any revolutionary just tear down the system and start over, but they would see those realities and work within that system and progress in that system. Although, you know, an argument can be made that, you know, with a guy like Chavez, uh, uh, you know, if, if we want to compare the two, um, that if, if it wasn't exactly a revolution, then he really did uh, instill some uh, serious reforms in Venezuela, um, 
nationalizing the media, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating social services that weren't there for the poor. Um, but, you know, again, I, I think you have to, like you were saying, Harrison, you, you kind of have to take it uh, specifically to the political situation in which this person is um, is rising. Uh, and each situation is different. Um, you know, another uh, great political leader might start or have his career um, in the KGB. And, uh, <laughs> is and, that where we're going? Okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> we can. Um, uh, you know, a very good argument could be made that, you know, where better uh, to start uh, than in in one of the most kind of entrenched, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, political uh, police state uh, mentalities uh, so that you're learning from within. Um, and uh, that's, I think, what we're seeing with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Well, I've said a few, we've had some conversations, you know, we talk a lot in the SOD office and when this has come up in the past, I, I've asked and I've said, okay, well, if if there were to be, like we're talking about today, if there were to be a good politician, a good leader, where would they come from? Well, the only answer that I can come up with is in the intelligence services. For the, And the reason that I think that is that when we're talking about pathocracy, the intelligence services are the ones that run the game. These are these... These are the entrenched systems of power. And so anyone trying to get into the system runs up against these intelligence agencies. And what do you do? Well, I mean, when you run up against the CIA, you get killed. But if you have been a part of that system, you know how it works. And within any institution, I mean... I don't think that 100% of the people that work at the CIA are evil. Probably a very, very large percentage. But <laughs> 98%. 98%, yeah. But, you know, there's always a faction of, there's always someone that's more decent than another person in any institution. You know, you, you, you're, in a, you're in a job and you've got a horrible boss and just lazy employees that you work with. But, you know, there's that one person you, that you see, oh, you know, that's a, that's a decent person. Or that person would make a good, good manager. You know, they're not. But every once in a while, you get a, a decent per, a decent person in a corporation or or whatever, and you can f- kind of form a little network with them. And I think those those probably exist. Now they may not be perfect, but they are a starting point. Before we get, I want to talk some more about Putin. But before we go there, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the nature of political reform and what is actually possible. Because I don't think that it's a feasible scenario to just come into a country and tear everything down and think that you can build it up again. There has to be some level of continuity between what's been going on before and what happens afterwards. If you just tear everything down, that is a chaos creator. I mean, that's what happens after world wars. And even even after a war, there's still some continuity. There's still... The, just the social systems and companies, businesses, you know, city workers, those things still exist to some degree, and they just have to get back on their feet and start up again. But if you just tear everything down, 
that I don't think that's a, a realistic approach to politics or to statesmanship. No, that's that's just a different agenda. Yeah. Or a different end. Mm-hmm. And it happens sometimes. But it's yeah, I don't I don't think that's a that's anything to aspire towards. So again, when we're looking at at politics, it's a matter of looking at the facts on the ground and what you can do with those facts make them a bit better. So yeah, I agree with with Elon. I think that there are quite a few similarities between Caesar and Putin. First of all, they kind of look the same, but they're both a little, both going a little bit bald, but that's cool. Um, well, just a few things about Putin. I mean, in the West, you hear, of course, that he's an evil dictator, an authoritarian. He holds sole power in the country, and everyone does what he tells them to. And if they don't, then he'll have you assassinated. That's the that's the image that we get over here, at least. But I'd I'd argue that he's not authoritarian; that he's author, authoritative. That like like Caesar in Rome, he he's where he is because he's the best person for the job. And if there were others like him, they'd be in similar positions. And Caesar would probably recognize them. And I think, I mean, Caesar, <laughs> Putin. Sorry, I'm confusing my autocrats. But he's there because because of. I mean, he is authoritative. He's authoritative in the sense that people listen to him because, first of all, the people trust him, and he makes good decisions. He's smart. He knows what he's doing. He also surrounds himself with a, a very high quality of people who obviously. Uh, put their trust in him. Um, you know, you, you think immediately of uh, Sergei uh, Lavrov, um, who uh, you know, who who is this man comparable to on, on the world scene today? Uh, very few. Um, and yet, uh, he he's a, a diplomat, a statesman of the first order. Um, you know, he's he's out there. Uh, shaking hands with and having conversations with uh, despicable liars like, <laughs> like John Kerry. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, Putin couldn't do what he was doing unless he had the trust and faith of people like Lavrov uh, who could uh, see where he's going and what he wants to do and uh, exercise every amount of, of will and skill um, in trying to make these situations, uh, Syria, Iran, uh, Ukraine, on the world stage, better. Um, and uh, it's very easy to disparage their efforts um, it, if you don't know what it is they're up against, and they're up against a lot. But leaders like Putin, uh, they, they have decided what kind of power they want to have. They um, outline that within their their psyche. Um, they they bring people up to the level they are aspiring to. So it's it's where has he set his sights and and who what is the caliber of the people that he is bringing up with him and that can that can kind of piggyback mm-hmm. on his trajectory. Um, and it's and it's very much about what kind of power you're you're choosing. If 
if you are uh, a leader today and you are settling for things and you are trying to, you know, monkey wrench things together and and come up with something, people see that they don't they don't aspire to that level that brings people down that changes mm-hmm. changes the you know the whole atmosphere. Well, I want to go off on that in a little bit of little bit of a different direction um, and use an analogy about being in a band. Now, for anyone who's been in a band or a musician, just like imagine this scenario where you've got a bunch of musicians and one of the one of the guys in the band is just really good. You know, he could be a great guitar player or she could be the the saxophone player that just she, like she's the one that makes the band great. And that having that one person in the band, it does it it acts on the rest of the band. So the rest of the band plays a bit better being with that person. But you take out that person, and then you're just left with kind of a mediocre band that you know. Or you get rid of the lead singer, and you you know you get some hammy bad singer that replaces them. It's like it takes something away, and it just doesn't work after that. That person made the band. Now, I think that a similar there's a similar thing going on in Russia and and back in Rome where if we look at Caesar, like Tom was saying, Caesar kind of held the the empire together in those last couple of years that he, if, if he hadn't had as much power as he did, it would just inevitably fall apart and civil war would crop up again. And it did after he died because there was no one to, to carry on that continuity from the the situation that Caesar was in after Caesar. Now, that's the problem that I see that Russia possibly being in is that th- despite all these great people that are surrounding Putin, I don't think that anyone's on the scene that could actually replace him and do as good a job. Mm-hmm. So things are still kind of centered around Putin. And luckily, and part of the reason for that is the immense popular support that he has among the Russian people. But what happens without Putin? Well, then you're left in this, you're left with that, that band that's lost their, their lead singer. And part another part of the, another problem is that at least from, from what I see reading about the way Russians see Putin and the government in general, the Russian people genuinely like Putin. They like what he's doing. They appreciate him, and they they want him to be their leader. At the same time, they 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 don't see the entire Russian government system as being Putin. There's still corruption. Like they see Putin as kind of the exception. There's some good stuff going on, but without Putin, the things wouldn't necessarily be great. At least that's the impression that I get. But but still, the the band, without their lead singer or their lead saxophonist, has experienced mm-hmm. a better quality of music. Yeah, they they have they have approached it, and will be looking for it again. Maybe there's a wonderful article that came out a few weeks ago, um, or maybe just about a week and a half ago. Is it Robert Ingledahl? Anyway, I'm butchering his name. William Ingdahl. William Ingdahl. Thank you. Uh, Russia's remarkable renaissance, and uh, you know this, this journalist has um, some roots there. Uh, he spent time with them. He, 
in, in Russia. Uh, he knows the Russian people. And it seems that the band uh, is not only those immediately surrounding Putin, but really a whole generation of um, Russians and even expats who've come back to Russia who are sharing this uh, this vision of a um, of a renewed uh, Russian society, a Russian culture, a Russian nation, um, mm-hmm. and want to be there uh, with all its problems because it still has problems and lots of them, um, but wants to be a part of its uh, of its growth. And uh, none of them have to say anything specific to Putin, um, but he's uh, instrumental in creating the conditions uh, in Russia today that uh, would uh, allow for this kind of uh, renaissance, if you if you'd like to call it that, um, and participation on the parts of uh, so many people who who have rejected, you know, things are better in the West. Uh, they, you know, this is a dynamic situation. This is a, uh, we're, we're seeing something really interesting there. And, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of very talented people recognize that and want to be a part of it. And, uh, and that wouldn't happen without his, his, uh, Mm -hmm. inspiring moves to the betterment of of the nation. I think you made a good point, Karen, about the fact that people can see that. I mean, they have something they have something to take pride in, and also they've got something to remember. I think this happened after Caesar died, is that they remembered Caesar, and they could, so after, when Augustus became emperor, they could see the disparity. They could see that Augustus was no Caesar, even if he called himself that. And Augustus just... He, he even went overboard with the propaganda around himself, that he was the son of God. He was the person to, to bring peace to the empire and the golden age. And people could see through that. And I talked about this when I was discussing uh, Israel Knoll's book on Messianism in, um, in the first first century BC and AD, is that this is what's, Certain Jewish groups at the time were saying that they, they saw Augustus as the Antichrist, the anti-Messiah. He was the false god, the false idol, because he presented himself as the savior, and he really wasn't. And none of the, none of the emperors after that, in those 100 or 200 years, you know, could say the same about themselves as, as Caesar. I mean, they were just as bad. So at the very least, yeah, I think that there's something to remember, and that gives people a yardstick by which to measure what else goes on. Because you can see, if they see corruption in their in their local leadership or their regional leadership, I mean, they've got something to compare it to and say, oh, well, you know, here's the here's the benchmark, and you're not living up to it. Now, luckily, at least in Russia, there's a person in charge who can do certain things and make certain decisions that you know, go along with those sorts of values. We don't have that in very many countries in the, in the world today. Certainly not the major Western countries. So I, you know, I think, I think more Westerners should uh, research Vladimir Putin (laughs) (laughs) and see what a, you know, what a real leader could do. But uh, speaking about 
Russians uh, recently, just a few days ago, an ex, an ex U.S. general got on Fox News, I believe it was, Robert H. Scales. And uh, this is what he had to say. The only way the United States can have any effect in this region and turn the tide is to start killing Russians, killing Russians by uh, killing so many Russians that even Putin's media can't hide the fact that Russians are returning to the motherland in body bags. But given the amount of support we've given the Ukrainians, given the ability of the Ukrainians themselves to counterattack against these, what, 12,000 Russians camped in their country, uh, sadly, that's not likely to happen. <laughs> 12,000 Russians. Wow. Kill the Russians. That's the answer. Roulette. <laughs> what do you say? What do you say? Yeah. <laughs> to a guy or, or about a guy like Scales. I mean, he... is off the scales. <laughs> he's off the scales. <laughs> he's... Uh, I'm, you know, well, I was speechless when I first read it, but... Uh, Having processed it a little bit, um, he he seems to get all of his info from uh, uh, the NATO chief uh, General Breedlove. I mean, he he's one of these guys who says, you know, there are forty thousand uh, Russian troops amassed at the border, and uh, when it's probably closer to twenty thousand, who you know they they don't have a uh, a, a strategic or or kind of a, um, a headquarters there. They've just been kind of stationed there since the beginning of the Ukraine crisis. Um, but just, just one of these guys who's so over the top and uh, has uh, no insight into what would make the situation bad. Basically, just a you know uh, a, a terrific mouthpiece for for the psychopathic mindset. Of, uh, of the U.S. military-industrial complex and all the neocons in the U.S. And uh, really, we, we, should, uh, we should thank him for, for making such an obvious uh, example of all of that. <laughs> well, the, the Russian investigative committee is launching a criminal case against him, or at least they've initiated the process. So hopefully, you know, I doubt anything will come of it, but it would be nice if it did. Well, they said that uh, such statements break not only the norms of the Russian legislation, but Article 20 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966, which prohibits any war propaganda or any instigation of discrimination, enmity, or violence. And I, yeah, I mean, to go on national TV and say that you've just got to kill a whole bunch of whoever, I mean, that says something about the level at which, you know, the American military politics, the media itself is. I mean, it's just, it's less than childish. It's like the worst of the terrible twos. It's like if you could get all the terrible twos together and distill them into like one person and then multiply that person <laughs> by several thousand, then you've got the American elite. Except nobody then follows the terrible twos. But they do follow guys like this. Anything else on that? On scales? Well, I guess it's no surprise that he he had a, uh, a his venue at Fox News, and um, there was a 
in in one of the articles that made mention of this, um, it mentioned that uh, Fox was ranked the most trusted network in the U.S. according to a recent poll by Quinnipiac University. Is that a a Canadian, have you ever heard of Quinnipiac University? No, I haven't. The, the Quinnipiac polls, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, the polls. So do they, do they like poll, you know, whether Britney Spears is more popular than, uh, <laughs> Christina Aguilera or are they, are they known for? I have no idea. <laughs> maybe they're part of News Corp. It's not the truth I've been seeking lately. <laughs> Well, that's just one example of, uh, <laughs> it's just embarrassing to see a guy like that get on TV and say something so stupid. But that's, that's what the American people and people, not just, not just in America, but in uh, Western media in general, I saw a clip from, I saw a clip on YouTube about the German media and just interviewing Germans about the way they saw their media apparently I think it was something like 63% of Germans polled didn't trust their media at all and thought it was just total lies when it came to to Russia and Ukraine. And so it's like that in, in several different countries. And for him to to get up there and say that thing about 12,000 Russians being in East Russians being in East Ukraine is just ridiculous. Well, uh speaking about German media, uh, that reminds me of the recent articles that have come out in Der Spiegel, um, where they are, and Der Spiegel has been kind of um, uh, a mouthpiece uh, for the Merkel um, administration, um, and they've been publicly refuting uh, General Breedlove's assertions, mm-hmm. um, really lies. Um, on, on the subject of how aggressive the Russian military is and uh, how many boots are on the ground that are um, representative of the Russian military in Ukraine. And um, it, it's, it's as though uh, the German government has finally woken up, assuming it's true that they have this direct line into Der Spiegel and are saying, you know, these are lies and we're trying to stave off uh, war with Europe and Russia, and uh, you just keep lying about it. Um, so finally, there's some movement there. I, I hope it continues. Um, it would be interesting to see uh, how the U.S. responds, um, how NATO responds uh, to what's being written there. So far, Breedlove has just been, uh, stand, you know, I've been standing, I stand by what I say. Yeah. Well, W stand by what he said as well. Uh, so did Ted Bundy. So, yes. Uh, look where look where that got everybody. Um, but uh, I guess we'll I guess we'll see. I guess it's a, a a close you know thing that's that's worth closely watching. What is what is Der Spiegel saying, and what will they continue to say? Well, and. And what will Breedlove continue to say? Because um, he is the top commander of NATO, and he is the American mouthpiece, um, and he has been known uh, recently to kind of thwart uh, whatever negotiations have been going on between uh, Merkel and Putin. 
uh, every time uh, there there are a little hints of breakthroughs in negotiation, uh, Breedlove comes up with some more statistics that are uh, really false, make make things look bad, and sabotages essentially the the uh, atmosphere. Um, and part of part of the blowback on Breedlove. Um, and of course, that that's part of the blowback on the United States uh, being in NATO, is that um, the the EU has been uh, throwing up some ideas about creating their own army. Um, it's they, many of the countries belong to the EU. I think there's something like 22 countries that belong to the EU. It's also uh, known as the North Atlantic Alliance. That's that's another name you might look for uh, when you're when you're researching or run into things about NATO. But um, it's not like all of these countries in the EU don't have their own armies. Um, the EU, in fact, has uh, like a, a reserve little battle group that uh, for any kind of emergencies. Um, they belong to NATO. This is this is a big conglomeration. They have the the U.S. Uh, contingency that's always kind of there. They all of these countries lend soldiers to each other, but now they've come up with this idea that they that they want to have an EU army. Um, and you have to kind of wonder why this is this has surfaced in the the past week or two. Um, that it's not just uh, that they're disgruntled and um, feeling the, the U.S. pressure in NATO um, and want to move out and be a little bit more autonomous. Uh, the United States uh, provides something like 70% of all of the funding to NATO. Um, and so it gets a big say mm-hmm. in, in what happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, just having the EU be kind of juxtaposition between Russia and the United States logistically and, and uh, uh, value-wise and mentally and, and whatever else goes into it uh, has to be an, an uncomfortable squeeze position. Um, if, if, mm-hmm. they, if they want to be a little more friendly to Russia, they've got the United States backing them off. Um, if they side with the United States, they, they run, you know, the risk of being lumped into all of the United States's um, mechanics, so it's it's uncomfortable. But this mm-hmm. is this is coming up, so hmm. we'll see what happens. What about Venezuela? Well, we've got some interesting things going on there. Um, uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, who um, took the leadership of Venezuela after the uh assassin oh, the um the the death of uh, uh Hugo Chavez well that was uh something he was assassinated poisoned i think Chavez thought so himself that that uh his death was a uh, a result of poisoning by the west um Maduro came out recently and um, he said that he was going to put uh, certain people in the West on a um, on his own terrorist watch list, which uh, is kind of um, 
it's kind of funny, it's ballsy, it's uh, it's brave, and it's probably most of all extremely appropriate um, and true and true. <laughs> so uh, he came out with the statement. Um, he said that uh, you know he was revoking visa rights for former U.S. politicians such as George W. Bush, Dick Cheney. And uh, as terrorists against the peoples of the world, um, which is uh, which is kind of remarkable and uh, again just fantastic. Uh, he he also said, "I've decided on a prohibition list for people who will not be permitted visas and who can never enter Venezuela for a set of chief U.S. politicians who have committed human rights violations. They have bombed the people of Iraq, the people of Syria, the people of Vietnam." It is an anti-terrorist list. Um, and he goes on in his speech uh, to call for a global rebellion against U.S. imperialism. Um, he goes on to say, the U.S. thinks it is the boss, the police of the world. Something happens somewhere, let's say in Asia, and a spokesperson for the U.S. comes out saying that the U.S. government thinks that such and such a government shouldn't do such and such a thing in Asia. Are we going to accept a global government? Enough of imperialism in the world. Um, and, uh, of course, this comes on the heels of a story in February about um, about some more individuals uh, in Venezuela who were um, caught colluding with, uh, with groups in the West uh, to try and undermine Venezuela yet again. Uh, there were a couple of Attempts at uh, coups when Chavez was in office. Um, was that just a recent one that you're talking about? Yep. Oh well, I I I happen to have a direct line to the U.S. State Department here. Oh, cool. Yeah, we've got uh, uh, we've got Jen Psaki here. She's gonna make a fool of herself. President Maduro last night went on the air and said that they'd arrested multiple people who were allegedly behind a coup that was backed by the United States. What is your response? Uh, these latest accusations, like all previous ac such accusations, are ludicrous. As a matter of long-standing policy, the United States does not support political transitions by non-constitutional means. Political transitions must be democratic, constitutional, peaceful, and legal. We've seen many times that the Venezuelan government tries to distract from its own actions by blaming the United States or other members of the international community for events inside Venezuela. These efforts reflect a lack of seriousness on the part of the Venezuelan government to deal with the grave situation it faces. The U.S. has a long-standing practice of not promoting, what did you say? How long-standing is that? I would... <laughs> The, in particular, in South and Latin America, that is not a longstanding practice. Well, my point here, Matt, without getting <laughs> into history, in is that we do not support, we have no involvement with, and these are ludicrous accusations. In this, in this specific Correct. case. Correct. But if you go back not that long ago, during your lifetime, even. This so is not that long. The last 21 years? <laughs> well done. <laughs> Touche. But I mean, look, I don't. I don't I, does longstanding mean ten years in this case? I mean, what? what Matt, is, my intention was to speak to I the understand. specific reports. But you said it's a longstanding U.S. practice, and I'm not so sure. I'll, it depends on what your definition of longstanding. We will. Okay. 
whatever we say about Ukraine, whatever, the change of government in the, in the beginning of last year uh, was unconstitutional. And you, you supported it. The, uh, the, the Constitution was not constitutional. Who let that man in the White House? <laughs> he never comes to a press meeting again. Oh, just I just want to comment on that for a few seconds because, oh, Saki. First of all, she said that it was ludicrous to say that the change in government in Ukraine wasn't constitutional. In On what planet was it constitutional? It wasn't. It's just a, a plain statement of fact. And the fact that she can't even admit she has to worm her way around the questions about the U.S. not, you know, violating the sovereignty of other countries by staging coup d'état. I mean, well, what do you say to a person like that? You, you, you can't. It, it, and there's no, there's absolutely no. Uh, you can't have a conversation with <laughs> with someone like that because she's just a. You know, you you might as well put uh, a tape recording of. Uh, of, of Dick Cheney's, you know, saying um, saying something equally bad and put it on the podium and, and let it play. I mean, there's no, uh, she probably doesn't even know anything. Uh, she's probably just as poorly informed as, uh, as you know, the, the, the administration would like well, the rest of the West to be. I think she knows some things. Like there was, she was caught on, uh, on audio. She thought her mic was off. Mm-hmm. On one at one of these press conferences, and she had well, because you can't tell by listening to this clip, but she's reading. So the person that asked the the question about Venezuela, she has her prepared responses for different topics. So she's reading the response that has been prepared for her, or by her, I don't know, probably for her. So she's reading it, but in this past instance, she was caught on audio saying, "Oh, oh, that that line on whatever was bullshit." Like she was saying that that their official line was bullshit, and so you can even 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 in the audio, it's kind of clear here that she knows what that what she's saying is total BS, mm-hmm. but she just can't bring herself to to contradict that written statement that it has that the U.S. has a longstanding uh, uh, practice of of not doing these nasty things, even though Matt can't remember his last name from AP, the guy that questions her after that, brings it up. She'll say she won't admit that she was wrong about that, but she'll say, she'll cl- just clarify that saying, oh, well, this was actually about this specific instance. So the implication there is, of course, that she's admitting that the U.S. has done this countless times elsewhere, but she never actually says it. And, and he calls her out on the fact that uh, she makes reference, you know, that's not a, a policy of the U.S. We don't do those sorts of things. So... And, you know, it's interesting that that she would say that because um, speaking specifically to Venezuela, what they were discussing, um, there's a a quote from the State Department that they, quote, provided training, institutional building and other support to individuals and organizations understood to be actively involved in the brief ouster. And that was uh, speaking to the 2002 attempted military coup in, in Venezuela when uh, uh, Chavez was was briefly um, ousted and then came back into power. Um, so, you know, who is she? Who is she trying to fool? But of course, you know, the White House has to make these statements. You know, it, it's just what they need to do. Uh, there are still a percentage of people who are uh, 
who are paying a certain amount of attention and and they have to respond in some way. Jeez. So. Just Saki being Saki. Yeah. But at least, I mean, at least we get to play clips of her being an idiot on the show and laugh because otherwise I, don't, I just don't know what I'd do. We'd cry. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that story actually got even more interesting um, because not a week after, you know, Maduro makes these statements and Paskey gets in, in front of the press corps and does her thing. Um, you have uh, Obama calling, uh, you know, Venezuela a, a national security threat. Um, what? I wish we had a, a soundbite of that, although that might have just been on paper. Um, but basically, you know, they're going to, I guess, create more sanctions against the Venezuelan, um, some people in Venezuela. Um, and it, it's just absurd. Uh, it's just totally absurd. Yeah. The U S is facing an imminent threat from Venezuela. We're going to see Venezuelan troops, you know, (laughs) on the streets of LA. Uh, you see, I, I don't even know what to say when s- something like this happens because it's so ridiculous. A national security threat? Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, well, uh, you know, it's just uh, he's just upping the ante, um, and uh, and that's basically their mo. Um, you know, they 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 had to do the same thing in Ukraine with. Uh, Crimea deciding to secede from uh, Ukraine and and joining the the Russian Federation. It now suddenly became about Russian aggression and all the lies and the propaganda have to get ramped up in response um, because they have no other recourse. There's nothing else they can really do. You know, I think that Obama might actually be a political genius. Yeah. And that everything that's been happening has, he's just been trying so hard to do everything so over the top that people finally get it that politics in the United States is a total joke and that all the scripts are being written by the staff at the onion. (laughs) And it's just that, you know, and I feel for Obama because, you know, he's he's trying really hard and just people aren't getting it. (laughs) People still are taking him seriously, but he has no intention of being, being taken seriously. He's just, uh, you know, he's playing his part and trying to get a few laughs every once in a while, but, the military seems to be, you know, just not getting the hint. They actually take his his jokes as if they're, you know, statements of fact, and then they go they go off in other countries. Well, you, you know how literal the, the military yeah. is. That's a really interesting theory. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking. I'm sticking to it. I think that's a good one. How about we move on to another part of the world? Well, there are some. Interesting things happening uh, in Iraq and Syria, of course. I mean, you know, we've been talking about ISIS for the last year. But um, first of all, on Thursday, so just a few days ago, uh, Marine General John F. Kelly said the following at a Pentagon briefing. He said that 100 would-be militants uh, have already left small Caribbean countries, including Venezuela, to fight with Islamic State extremists in Syria, and that they could potentially get across the U.S. border when they return home. So, you know, another big threat 
you know, this one coming partially out of Venezuela because the Islamic extremists are going from Venezuela and then all these Carib- Caribbean countries over to fight, and then they're going to come back and we're going to, you know, have a whole bunch of problems. But, you know, so this happened on Thursday. Well, just a few days before that, on Monday, on March 9th, a member of the Iraqi Parliament's Security and Defense Committee, Abbas al-Khazali, said that he was in, in possession of irrefutable intelligence documents showing that the Islamic State is receiving arms aid from Israel, as well as a number of Western and Arab countries. He also, in the same statement, said that Baghdad needs more weapons, they need more supplies, and that they are willing to purchase them from East European countries, Russia, and China. This is a, a member of the Iraqi parliament. Now, he's not the first one to say something like this. In fact, I've got a whole list here, and you know, I'll try to get through them all, just to interrupt me if, if it gets boring. But first of all, in October, um, the... Uh, some context. The U.S. was looking into an instance, an event that happened in Iraq, where they, quote, mistakenly dropped supplies onto ISIS. These supplies were supposedly meant for the Kurds fighting Kobani against the Islamic State there in Syria on the border with Turkey. So they mistakenly dropped these supplies to, to IS, and so that they were looking into it. This was in October. Skip a few months in December. Iraqi MP Majid al-Gharawi disclosed that U.S. planes were supplying ISIS terrorists um, with arms and communication in the Salahuddin province. He added that the U.S. and the International Coalition are, quote, not serious in fighting against the ISIL organization because they have the technological power to determine the presence of ISIL gunmen and destroy them in one month. The U.S. is trying to expand the time of the war against ISIL to get guarantees from the Iraqi government to have its bases in Mosul and Anbar provinces. Again, this is also in December. Another senior lawmaker in Iraq, Nahla al-Hababi, complained that the terrorist group still received aids dropped by, quote, unidentified aircraft. He said, the international coalition is not serious about airstrikes on ISIL terrorists and is even seeking to take out the popular voluntary forces from the battlefield against the Takfiris, ISIS, so that the problem with ISIS remains unsolved in the near future. This is the U.S.'s goal, he's saying, is to make sure that the conflict remains unresolved. He also said that the ISIL terrorists are still receiving aid from uh, from unidentified fighter jets, or unidentified fighter jets in Iraq and January 3rd, just after these statements were made, committee chairman of the Salahuddin Security Commission, uh, Jassim al-Jabara, now Salahuddin was the place that they said that they were dropping the supplies for ISIS, he disclosed that, again, unknown planes threw arms and ammunition to the ISIL gunmen southeast of Tikrit City, also uh, near the Daur or Dur district and Mosul. January 5th, two days later, commander of Iran's Basij Volunteer Force Brigadier General Mohammad Reza Nakhdi said that the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad is the command center for the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant and for all these terrorists. He said, quote, the U.S. directly supports ISIL in Iraq and the U.S. planes drop the needed aid and weapons for ISIL in Iraq. This is a guy in Iran saying that. But then again in, in January, 
The head of the Iraqi parliament's National Security and Defense Committee, Hakem al-Zameli, disclosed that the coalition had dropped weapons, including advanced anti-aircraft weapons and foodstuff for ISIL in Salahuddin, again, Al-Anbar and Diyala provinces. He said that the coalition is the main cause of ISIL's survival in Iraq. Again in January, another senior Iraqi legislator, Jome Divan, a member of the al-Sadr bloc in the Iraqi parliament, reiterated that the U.S.-led coalition is the main cause of ISIL's survival in Iraq. The international coalition, he said, is only an excuse for protecting the ISIL and helping the terrorist groups with their equipment uh, and weapons. He said that the coalition's support for ISIL is now evident to everyone and continued, the coalition has not targeted ISIL's main positions in Iraq. Okay, we knew that. Those were in January. February 21st, again, Al-Zameli announced that he had documents and photos showing that the U.S. Uh, Apache helicopters airdropped foodstuff and weapons for ISIL in the southern part of Tikrit. Popular Iraqi forces shot down one of the U.S. helicopters carrying the weapons drop and released photos of this helicopter a week later, on the 28th. Two days after that statement, on February 23rd, al-Zameli declared that the Iraqi army has shot down two British planes as they were carrying weapons for ISIS in the al-Anbar province. The Iraqi parliament, after that, asked London for an explanation. Uh, I don't think they're going to get one. The Iraqi lawmaker further noted the cause of such Western aids to the terrorist group and explained that the U.S. prefers a chaotic situation in Anbar province, which is near the cities of Karbala and Baghdad, as it does not want the ISIS crisis to come to an end. Also on the 23rd, head of the Al-Anbar Provincial Council, Khalaf Tarmuz, said, We have discovered weapons made in the U.S., European countries, and Israel from the areas liberated from ISIS's control in the al-Baghdadi region. So they find American weapons there. Two days after that, February 25th, coordinator of the Iraqi Popular Forces, Jafar al-Jaberi, said, The U.S. planes have dropped weapons for the ISIL terrorists in the areas under ISIL control and even in those areas that have been recently liberated from the ISIS control to encourage the terrorists to return to those places. Where, 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 where are you getting this stuff from? The uh, the internet? You're reading those articles on the internet again, Harrison? Yeah, this is this is Iraqi news. Well, just wait, one more. <laughs> Sunday, March 8th. So this is the day before uh, that first guy um, was talking about, uh, well, first, this is the day before the first thing that I mentioned. Iraqi special forces declared that they have arrested several ISIL foreign military advisors, including American, Israeli, and Arab nationals, in an operation in Mosul in the northern parts of the country. The Iraqi forces said that they have retrieved four foreign passports, including including those that belong to American and Israeli nationals, and one that belonged to the to the to a national of the Persian Gulf Cooperation Cooperation Council member state. Yeah. Okay. What What are the implications of this? <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, these are all official statements from members of the Iraqi Parliament, mm-hmm. and you well, know, let's take them as as true, um, because there there's been more than enough uh, information out there to suggest that the war on terror is manufactured. Um, 
what is what does it allow the U.S. to do? Uh, it allows the U.S. to continue to bomb Syrian infrastructure. Uh, by the way, they're saying that over a hundred uh, Syrian civilians have been killed in those bombings, uh, which in itself is it's just horrific. Um, and and perpetuate this narrative. Um, you know, couple that with with the monthly beheading du jour uh, that we're subject to. Uh, yeah, it, it's you know, Al Qaeda got tired, and they needed to create this new uh, ISIS threat, and um, and it, when will it stop? It it won't anytime soon. Um, not as long as it's working. No. Well, back to Russia for a minute. This happened at a particular time because when the whole chemical weapons thing was going on in Syria, Russia basically stepped in as the, the sane party and resolved the, the non-conflict because Syria did not, you know, was not, uh, Assad was not gassing his own people as the West was saying. It was just ludicrous, um, to use Saki's term. <laughs> I'm not being Saki. Um, but so Russia basically came in and resolved that situation, which kind of put the kibosh on the U.S.'s wish to go in and bomb the place. So now we have this ISIS crisis. And with all, you know, like you were saying, with the the weekly or monthly beheadings, and now people are, you know, crying and and wishing for a, a new bombing campaign, a new war. It's almost as if ISIS, with their slick propaganda, is fitting right in with American foreign policy agenda, which is an odd coincidence. And nothing more. Look, do not look at the man behind the curtain. And so... The U.S. seems to be getting what it's what it wants, or at least is in the process of eventually getting what it wants. When Russia had stopped that several years ago, and so why do they want Syria? Well, of course, Russia has a pretty tight relationship with Syria, and like so many conflicts in that part of the world, um, well, all over, look at Ukraine. This is kind of this is all part of. The U.S.'s agenda to take Russia down a notch or two, or to just eliminate it from the playing game, the playing field. So, bringing it back to how we started this discussion, I think when you consider all of these things going on, and you look at this ISIS organization, for example, and the the evidence and just the astounding idea that the U.S. is actually, you know, dropping weapons and supplies for them while at the same time allegedly, you know, supposed to be engaged in this military conflict with them. Just think about the the mentality behind that and then th put yourself in the position of all those Russian politicians and, and intelligence individuals and just look at what they're up against. Look at what Putin's up against. 
and just think about the enormous amount of pressure and danger in a situation like this where you've got the world against you. Not only do you have your own internal enemies, but you've got, you know, the, the allegedly the biggest military might, the biggest superpower with the, you know, the barrel pointed at your head. Just the amount of stress that, that that must cause. And to be able to keep your head cool enough to to make intelligent decisions on how to navigate the minefield. Um, you know, I've got, while I don't like politicians in general, I've got, you know, a, a huge amount of respect for a person that can put up with that every day. And And there's another thought for anyone who, I guess, you know, comes from, uh, that part of the world, uh, Russia, Eurasia, and that is the tremendous amount of energy and resources uh, that the Russian government has to expend in order to um, identify and isolate and try to uh, uh, all of these um, these conflicts. Um, you know, if you're if you're focused on all of those things uh, that um, are ostensibly designed to to put your country under, uh, it doesn't leave very much time to think about other things. Um, and so, you know, one thought that that comes up in all this is uh, considering um, that article that was mentioned a little earlier uh, by Ingedal. Um, where might a country like Russia be today um, if it didn't have to put all of its or as much of its resources and energy and focus and time as it is right now? Uh, where would it be today um, with itself, with its economy, with its people, uh, with uh, creating other uh, connections to other nations um, if it didn't have to think about all of these things? Um, and, uh, I don't know, maybe that's a question we can also apply to, uh, Caesar's leadership. You know, um, what, what might have he been able to accomplish if, uh, Rome wasn't as fractured as it was, if he didn't have, uh, as many optimates, um, as there were trying to vie for power. Uh, what what might have he accomplished? Um, yeah. What if the United States was on a different trajectory? Bingo. What could we have be accomplishing? Yeah. What if Kennedy wasn't assassinated? What if every every president since then wasn't a total tool? It's the stuff of dreams. <laughs> We should all leave the world better than we left than we came into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, do we have anything else we want to cover today? Um, it? It's up to you. Well, uh, just on the subject of um, Russia, there was a, another article posted to SOT recently about a senator and a, a member of parliament who um, had actually proposed bills uh, separately uh, to have all candidates for public office mm-hmm. take um, uh, mental health tests. And uh, I thought that was real interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I, 
I thought it was interesting for one that it, that it would take someone um, in Russia to to say that, but I think it's kind of a healthy uh, perspective on the whole problem. Um, and uh, and why haven't we heard that suggestion made in the U.S. by anybody? At least none that I. I'll make it. I'll make it right now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You go, Harrison. Motion proposed. Aye. Aye. (laughs) Fast. (laughs) Mental health tests for all candidates in the U.S. And then the results should be made available to the public. On that Quinnipiac poll, maybe. Yes. (laughs) Can you imagine if if that would happen and the results were made public? Well, you know. Just uh, on a related note, there's a new book that's been published by a guy named, written by a guy named Henry Vinson. He wrote it with Nick Bryant. Nick Bryant is a journalist, and he wrote the book The Franklin Scandal a few years ago on the the pedophilia network cover-up in the 80s. And Vinson was actually uh, mentioned in this book. He was the... he. Owned and owned and operated um, a gay escort service in Washington D.C. And he, so he came into this whole Franklin scandal because he was associated with the CIA guy, and there were ties with what was going on with the Franklin people. And the book is called "Confessions of a D.C. Madam: The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail." Now it just came out. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I've read a few reviews and summaries of it, and it sounds pretty explosive and interesting. Just a few of the th- of the facts that are revealed in this book, because Vincent met a whole lot of people. Um, he was catering, catering to the, the highest levels of U.S. government people. First, a little bit of trivia that he knew the the infamous Jeff Gannon as a gay sex worker from the eighties, Gannon was uh, kind of made the news several years back as in the, what was he in like the press corps or something at the white house. <laughs> and so you've got pictures of him like hugging George Bush at the time. And uh, so Vincent knew him and, his, and was associated with him in the eighties. Another one, CIA chief William Casey was getting gay escorts to service him in 1986 as was Donald Gregg, a 30-year CIA veteran associated with George H.W. Bush. Casey was requesting to have sex with children. A George H.W. Uh, Bush cabinet heavy hitter was being provided adolescent boys to have sex with by Craig Spence. That was the CIA-connected guy. This cabinet official was brought in to rescue Donald Gregg, from being exposed in a GOA probe of Greg for using government credit cards to buy gay escorts. Now, um, apparently, this guy isn't, his name isn't revealed in the book, but it can be deduced from his description as being Attorney General Richard Thornburg. Those are just a few, um, a few of the, the revelations from this book. Nick Bryant is, well, I've recommended his book several times. He's just a, an amazing journalist and totally credible, and he checks his sources. And so the fact that he's associated with this book and that Vincent decided to come forward um, with it 
I think it's a it's a good thing because it reveals just the nasty side of politics. And this stuff is still going on. It wasn't just in the 80s, and it wasn't just George H.W. Bush. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that, throw that out there. If you weren't horrified enough already. Gosh, what is it about the elites and pedophilia? I mean, we've had these stories come out recently about, uh, you know, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher's people protecting uh, MPs in, uh, in England uh, and the cover-up there. And, of course, they were also uh, killing these children, it appears. Um, so we have this in the U.K., we have this in the U.S., um, probably other Western countries as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, France, Netherlands, Portugal. Portugal, yeah. Just, um, I just want to say the name of the book again. Um, it is Henry Vinson, the author, Confessions of a DC Madam. And as for just the idea of it, um, there was an interesting article on SOT in reference to the, the Thatcher scandal. And the person writing the article made a good point, is that if you're a person, or I wouldn't say a person, if you're an individual like this with these kinds of, I don't even describe it, perversities, how, you know, how did you, how do you go about your life in order to get what you want? Well, you can just be a, you know, a shady, skeezy, you know, child molester on the street and try to get by without getting caught. Or you can work your way to the top of a power structure where you're totally protected. And so the point that this author was trying to make is that that's, that's why the, the, the upper echelons of, of leadership positions in any country are dominated by pedophiles is because that's, they gravitate towards those positions in order to gain that security and that freedom from, from being caught. Because even if someone speaks out against them, they've got an entire system of protections that they can use in order to get away with it. And reading these, reading Nick Bryant's book or just reading about the current scandal going on in the UK, you see how this plays out, where they, they own the police. I mean, they can get investigations shut. They can get fire, files disappeared. They can get people killed. I mean, it's, it's just where, where this type of person would want to be. And so that's the that's the way it is, unfortunately. And so you've got these kinds of people attracted towards positions of power, and that is the environment that you enter if you want to change the system. And just think about that for a minute, that these are the people you're up against. And the other perversity is killing people in general. Yeah. Uh, having no compunction about uh, engineering a, a coup, um, a color revolution, um, an assassination, uh, just to further your own idea of what power is in another nation. Um, 
And, uh, you know, it reminds me of this, a recent article about the numbers of um, drone operators who recruited from the Air Force and other various places who have quit. There are more people quitting doing this job than, than they can hire on, apparently. And uh, they experience post-traumatic stress and uh, real, uh, real pangs of conscience when they realize that what they're asked to do and what they have done is basically play a video game uh, where uh, the, the people on the screen are alive and innocent and murdered because of buttons that they're pushing. Um, so uh, all manner of perversity uh, at, at, the, at the highest levels um, that have this uh, trickle-down effect on, uh, on everyone else in one way or another. All right. It looks like we have a caller. So, Kent from West Virginia. How are you doing, Kent? Pretty good. Uh, yeah, what's interesting about this um, pedophilia, this tends to be, I'm um, um, generalities now, but all of these are like uh, Republicans in the United States or in the Conservative Party in, in, in the U.K., and these are the uh, staunch upright um most of them have families. I'm sure they all have families. They have wives. And, uh, but, uh, well, let's see. There's never another woman in their life, so they're, they're very respectable in that fashion. And so that's odd, you know. And it's always sort of the, um, in this United States, the Democrats, you know, like Gary Hart and uh, Bill Clinton and um, John Kennedy. Well, if they like girls, well, then they out, you know, these, these, uh, these perverted ones are out, you know, to get them because they like the girls, you know. So... And, but, you know, these guys, they're faithful to the wives. The wives love them because there's never the scandal of another woman in their life. And, of course, when boys are boys, well, who cares what they get up to? And, of course, then they're, they're always the, uh, the business people that are trying to screw people in every way, shape, or form. So there's another aspect of it that I always found interesting. But uh, it's pretty disgusting altogether as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how you get rid of it. Yeah, no, it is disgusting. Thanks for thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Kent. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, you mentioned the Democrats and Republicans. I'll, I'll have to double check the the Franklin book because I'm pretty sure there were there were Democrats associated with that too. So it's not just the Republicans. It may be. I mean, there may be. It may be that there are more Republicans than Democrats that are associated with these kind of things, but uh, I think it's something that spans political parties in general. Yeah. So I think we're going to end it there on that light note. And, yeah, so thank you for listening. Check out some of the books that we mentioned today. And we will talk to you again next week. So everyone take care. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.